these people who have been coming up as we've been working through the series of Mark and sharing their stories, I think almost every one of them, it was one of the first times they've ever done it in this context. So I don't want you to get the wrong impression that the mid-tree leadership was like trying to find all the varsity players to come up and, and share. That's not, a, in, in fact, quite honestly, I, I mean, Jared, uh, we were talking ahead of time, a little bit nervous, maybe a little bit nervous uh, about time, and you get up here and, and like rock star the whole thing out. Uh, and, and if that is an encouragement, I'm telling you guys, if you will let God use you, stretch you, he will do it. And, and so sometimes it's just about us taking the first step. So uh, Jared kicked us off. Uh, if you want, go ahead and grab your Bibles. I usually say, hey, if you got a Bible, turn to it, or we're going to have one in the back. But we're going to do something together as a congregation where it would be helpful if you have one. And so we have them on the ends of the pews. There's nothing embarrassing if you need to hop up and reach over and grab one. Uh, iPads and phones are allowed as well. I want everybody to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire book of Psalms, 150 chapters in the book of Psalms, and 119 is the longest. You are going to be hard-pressed to find a single verse in that chapter that doesn't talk about God's word, God's law, God's statutes, God's testimony. The whole thing is about how amazing and how cool this book is. Uh, I'm not a big uh, flip and find Devo guy, you know, where you're just like, Lord, what do you want me to learn today? That, that's not my style. I just read through books of the Bible. I don't know if I'm boring or older, mature. We'll take one. But what I, what I want you guys to do is I just want you to pick a verse. Go ahead and let your eyes skim over Psalm 119. And as you let your eyes skim across Psalm 119, I just want you to pick out a little verse. Almost all of them are going to be about God's word. Now, Travis prayed for us and encouraged, or Travis encouraged us that we were about to get in God's word. And uh, Stokes, you prayed for us. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to pray and ask that we would be a people who are excited to read this book. Because it's living and active. It's God's word. It's not done. Still active. Still doing stuff. And then Bennett came back up because I'm going to be quiet at the end of my prayer for about 30 seconds. For many of us in the sermon, it's going to feel like an eternity. All I want you to do is pray through that scripture or scriptures that your eyes find. Not out loud, just silently in the room. Read it to yourself and pray through portions of it. Pray with me. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and I'll do this as an example. And then as a congregation, we'll do that silently together. Pray with me. Father, your word says in Psalm 119 that blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And every one of us walk into this room not blameless. We, we are a blame-filled people. Every one of us have a story that may not be exactly like Jared's, but, to, but it is exactly like Jared's in the sense that we are broken, we are helpless, and we are hopeless, and we need grace. Father, your word goes on and says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And so, Father, my prayer for myself, even in preaching this text in Mark 2, and for everyone who is listening in this room, listening at home, or may stumble across this sermon 10 years from now, Father, my prayer is that we would seek you with every ounce of our heart, that we would fight for our mind not to flee into other thoughts, that our emotions would be engaged by your word, that the comings and goings of our life would be orchestrated by you, and that we would trust you in it. And so, Father, as we take a moment silently in this room and we pray through a text, may your word speak to us, call us out, and draw us near to you. Congregation, just take about 30 seconds 
and silently pray through any verse that your eyes have hit. giving us your word. May we be good to you by giving you our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Bennett. Appreciate you, brother. All right, guys, Mark chapter 2. Um, if it's been a minute since you uh, spent some time in prayer, I'd encourage you to make that practice something regular. Just have your Bible, open it up, find a verse, and pray through it. Now, we have been working through the book of Mark. Typically, we go kind of left to right, but we've been doing it a little bit different because Mark doesn't go chronologically. We've been looking at different types of stories, and the story that Jared shared with us is a story of encounter. And what I mean by a story of encounter is this. Uh, many of you in this room have this story, or you probably have half a dozen of them, quite honestly, where you're kind of just going through life, you're doing things normal, and then unexpected hits, right? You're not expecting this, you're not seeing this, you have an encounter, and God steps in and does something. Maybe it is your, your, your like, I came to Jesus' testimony salvation. Maybe it was how your marriage was saved. Maybe it was how you conceived a child. Maybe it was how you ended up moving. Maybe it was, you know, whatever it is, an encounter story. Well, we're going to look at two this evening. The first story that we're going to look at is one of my favorites since I was a kid. It's the story of the paralytic. If you know the story, you got this guy paralyzed, can't move, paralyzed by sin. This guy's paralyzed because of spinal cord or head or something like that. And he's got a handful of buddies and they're like, we're getting this dude to Jesus. Jesus is healing people. We're going to get you there. And they get there, and the house is a little full, so they got to do a little remodeling. And then as soon as that finishes, Jesus walks out, and he passes the tax collector booth. And there's a dude sitting there named Levi. He later is renamed Matthew, the Matthew who wrote the gospel. And Jesus looks at him and gives this massively long presentation of the gospel, follow me, and Matthew says, all right, that was enough for me. I'm going to completely change my entire life based on two words, and that is what he does. All right, so if you got your Bibles, Matthew 2, starting in verse 1, let's start with the paralytic. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic, Carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. All right, quick pause there. Can we all admit that that is a pretty fantastic story, right? I mean, it is true, it's not just a story, but if I was in the middle of my preaching and all of a sudden we heard from above uh, a, a sawzall cutting through the metal, you, you don't forget that Sunday. You remember that one for the rest of your life. But what's interesting about this is the, the hole was big. It was big enough to get this guy on his bed down in front of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, here's what's crazy about that. Why was he there? He, you could make the argument, maybe he really wanted to come to Jesus to get his heart right, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It, it would be like if you were nine years old, uh, eight years old, one day away from nine, and you were about to have your birthday party at the Lambert Skate Center, but you were playing with a friend of yours, and Daniel was chasing you, and you reached for the monkey bar, and you slipped. Y'all may not have this exact memory, I happen to, and you slip and you shatter all the growth plates in your elbow on a Friday when the hospital or whatever, I can't remember, we ended up at Houston Clinic, okay, on Veterans Parkway. And I'm at Houston Clinic and my birthday party's tomorrow and I'm crying and I'm nine years old and and the guy comes in and they're taking x-rays and it hurts like that hurts and then that hurts, the whole thing, it just hurts. You know how it is, you're like hugging it like a baby, some of y'all need to live more exciting lives. I feel like I'm looking at too many people who haven't broken bones or had surgeries outside of just being old. If all of your surgeries are just because you're old, I want you to come and hang out with me for a couple of weekends. We'll figure that out. We'll get that fixed up. And, and, and you're standing there and the doctor comes in and he's like, William, that's what it would have been when I was nine. William, I've got really good news. You have shattered the growth plates in your left elbow before your birthday party, but your sins are forgiven, buddy. Um... Okay, not why I'm here. That's awesome, not why I'm here. So why is Jesus looking at this guy who is lowered down in front of him, obviously sick, obviously paralyzed, and he looks at the guy and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And interestingly enough, this guy doesn't push back. Now, if we look at this same story from Luke, In Luke chapter 8, this is going to appear behind me. You don't need to flip to it. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. In other words, they tell a lot of the same stories to a different audience or from a different perspective. And when Luke begins this story, here's how he does it in Luke 5.17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, why do I highlight this? Because people were coming to Jesus to be healed. Was he teaching? Absolutely, he was teaching. But this was a specific moment that stood out to Luke, brought up by the Holy Spirit for him to write down, Jesus was doing healing stuff. This is why the four friends say, let's go grab our buddy and let's get him here. So why would Jesus say to a sick person, your sins are forgiven? One concept just to wrestle with, and I mean wrestle with, because I don't know that you or I are ever going to understand it this side of heaven. Sin and disease, sickness and brokenness are combined in this world in a unique way. doesn't mean every time you get sick, you sin. doesn't mean every time you sin, you get sick. But there is some connection in the scriptures about who we were in the garden before sin In happiness, there was no brokenness, no tears, no crying, no illness, no sickness, no disease. And then sin comes into the world, and following that inertia of sin comes all manner of brokenness that you and I think is normal, but was not normal to the way that God created things. One of the ways that we see this is in James 5. It goes on, it says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If you're suffering tonight, I just want you to know, there are going to be a few of us. Uh, I'm going to be there, and then the Crumb Packers, blue shirt and red shirt, are going to be in the, in the back there. We would love to pray with you. We intentionally go to the back of the room so that you don't have to come down front. Nobody has to see it. We'll step on the other side of the door. We would love to pray for you. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. 
Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We do that too. Is anyone among you sick? Here's what the Bible tells you to do if you're sick. Let him call for the elders of the church. We did this just a couple of weeks ago over there. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil is not super magic pixie dust of the Old Testament. It was uh, a symbol for the presence of the Holy Spirit. What it's basically saying is, even if the leaders of the church get there together, it doesn't mean that we have some special Jesus card. And because Will's the pastor, you come and Will's like, and now you're healed. And you've probably seen this on TV. Um, that What this is actually saying, it's the elder saying, we really need the Holy Spirit. Right? We don't walk around with some super plus card, Jesus plus card, we need God to show up. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That word save is pretty fascinating. In the text, that word save is used two different ways. Way number one, it will save you physically from sickness, disease, calamity, brokenness, etc. and so on. That same word save is also referring to your soul, save you from sin, condemnation, and hell. And it's put together intentionally, but we can read on and understand more. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This is a resurrection term. This is talking about people who have sinned, that one day are going to stand before God, being raised back to newness of life, just like we were in the garden. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, you can get sick, and it not be because you committed sin. But if we're honest with ourselves... You commit sin and you let that sin lead to another sin, it will jack up your body. It'll jack up your mind. It'll jack up your soul. It'll jack up your emotions. It'll jack up your relationships. That is what sin is best at. But what we find here is there is a priority of forgiveness. There is a priority of resurrection. And when Jesus sees the faith of these friends, that to me is the most amazing part of this text. Jesus doesn't see the paralytic who had faith. He sees the friends who had faith for him. If you look at that James 5 passage, and you sort of, not in a preaching context, but you get a decent light bulb ahead of you and some notes, and you start taking notes on this passage, what you realize is it's referring to the prayer of the elders having faith, not the person who's sick. You ever been sick before? Feel super faithful in that moment? You feel full of faith when you're going through COVID, when you're going through chemo, when you're going through therapy, when you're going through whatever. The Bible puts on full display that we need people sometimes to have faith for us. Now, the faith that people have for us, it can't save us. But God will use faithful people to bring us to a place where we are able to exercise the gift of faith that he gives us. That's what we see in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So the way to look at this, if you want to think about how does a heart that is not trusting in Christ become a heart that is trusting in Christ, the Bible makes it pretty clear. We, we are hopeless, paralyzed, and helpless, and we can't do a darn thing. Our legs don't work to get there. And then Jesus steps in, we receive faith, which according to God's word is a gift from God, and that, through that faith, we receive the grace of God. Now, why do I say that? Because the most ardent atheist, the most opposed agnostic, needs but one droplet of faith from the Father. And God loves giving faith. Many times, he uses you to do that. 
But sometimes we don't realize what the greatest need is. It's probably what this paralytic had going on. He thought the greatest need was that these things weren't working right. He had bed sores. He smelled. He couldn't hold down a job. He couldn't do anything but beg. If only my legs would work, then I would have the life that I need. Tell me you and I don't say the exact same thing with a different fill in the blank. If only I had this job, this relationship. If only that was a reality or this thing was not a reality, then I would be happy. I would be joyful. I would hit cruise control. And one thing that God puts on display for us quickly in this passage is what you and I think we need may not be what we ultimately need. As this man who can't walk is lowered before Jesus, and Jesus says, I've got good news for you, son. Your sins have been forgiven. Check out verse 6 as we continue on. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. In case you don't know who the scribes are, I I think the, um, the biblical term today would be the religious punks. That's kind of who they are. They're the snobs. They're the actualies. You're talking, they're like, actually, that's who they are. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, didn't even say this out loud, how cool is Jesus? Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we can give these guys some credit. They're exactly right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. That is a God-sized problem. When you have sinned, lied, stolen, cheated, had horrible thoughts, said horrible things, you do not have the ability to clean yourself up. Not when God is looking at it. And so these scribes, they know their Bibles pretty well. They know that only God can forgive sins, which means if Jesus is saying he can forgive sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. And if you fast forward many months, years from now, this very thing is what gets Jesus on a cross. Blasphemy. It's this very charge that puts Jesus on the cross. If he's crucified for being a prophet, you and I die in our sins. If he's crucified for being a really good teacher, if Jesus is crucified because he was the best healer and lots of people followed him instead of the religious elites of the day, every one of us is still paralyzed and hopeless in our sins. But if they crucified Jesus because he said he was God and he was, you and I actually have hope because that person can forgive us of our sins. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, hey man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, hey buddy, rise up, take your bed, and walk. Saying stuff isn't hard. And we might get nervous sometimes, but we say stuff all the time. We say stuff that's good, we say stuff that's bad. It isn't hard to say stuff. It can be really hard to back it up. You do this all the time. Hey, I'll be there in 15 minutes. No, you're a liar. You know it's going to take you 25. You just don't want to deal with it in the moment. So you lie on your text. All right, yeah, we all do it because we're all sinners and we all need Jesus. We say stuff. I'll be right there. No, you won't. You're going to finish playing that video game before you come down to dinner if I don't come up there and yell at you. That is a little more personal. But... All of us just say stuff. We can barely catch it before it comes out. We are so built to to protect ourselves, to make ourselves look really nice, that we have all these little phraseologies that we just just throw it out. We just say stuff. But Jesus looks at these religious people and he says, all right, let's have a little dialogue here. You tell me what's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. Now, saying somebody's sins are forgiven is easy. 
because none of us have a little thermometer for sin. I can't just, isn't this sort of a good thing? <laughs> if everybody, let's put this in COVID land real quick. Everybody's coming in the door and we're like, let's just see how your sin meter, all right, 15% sinner, come on in. You can sit toward the front. Then in comes the next person, boop, 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 boop. you just blew out my machine. All right, we're going to need a pastor to pray with you before you make it in the sanctuary. We don't have that ability, but I can tell you if somebody's walking. I can tell you if somebody is sick. And so Jesus says, you tell me, what would be easier? Saying stuff isn't hard. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite phrase for himself 81 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I didn't have this in my notes, but I have to share this with you because I think it's so cool. Jesus is doing two things at the exact same time. He's referring to himself as the son of man from Daniel, I think, chapter 5. When he says the son of man, he's relating to you. He's saying, I'm human. I, I hurt. I get tired. I get weak. I get worn out. That's what Jesus is saying in one hand. And on the other hand, he's saying, and I can forgive sins. Now, we may not think about it real deeply when we just read through little verses like this, but this is one of the deepest theological realities that a Christian must get. Jesus had to be fully man so that he could die for someone like you who is fully man, fully woman. But he also had to be fully God so that he could absorb the wrath of one who is fully God. And I just think you need to know that as theological people, that that is what's happening while this paralytic is being lowered down. Jesus is like, I'm doing this amazing thing, but hey, people, 2,000 years from now, there's really good theology in this that you need to sort of just nibble up and hold on to for the rest of your lives. So anyway, he goes on. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And they're talking about something they heard. We have never seen somebody back up what they say like this. Jesus forgave sins because Jesus was God. And Jesus forgives sins today because he is. And I'm not only talking to the non-Christian in the room when I say, it is good that Jesus still forgives sins today. Every one of us, like Jared said, needs grace daily. Let me give you two ways that I'm encouraged. If you're a note taker, this would be the time to pull out your pen, lick it, get your iPad, whatever it is. Let me tell you two ways that I am encouraged to be a part, not even the pastor of this thing, but be a part of a group of people like you in this little missions project we call Midtree Church. Number one, two ways I'm encouraged. When we view our evangelism as an investment and not as an event. I'm not saying we will never have some kind of evangelistic event, but you guys, many of you, put on display that you don't see evangelism as this thing that you darn it just have to do sometimes. And let me tell you how you do that well. You don't quit trying to get your friends and the people you love to Jesus. Think about this paralytic and his buddies. They didn't quit. They didn't quit when they got to a crowded room, a crowded house. They didn't quit when they couldn't get inside. They didn't quit when a roof was between them and Jesus. The dudes 
were savage about getting people they loved in front of Jesus. And I, I just want you guys to know, I receive faith and encouragement from you because there are people in my life that I struggle to have faith that God can save. I know what I just said. I'm just being honest with you. I know theologically God can save anyone. He's the one who gives faith. That's where we get grace from. I know that theologically. Doesn't mean I feel it all the time. Being the pastor doesn't mean you feel everything that you read any more than being a congregant of a church means you feel everything that you read. But when I watch you guys not quit, uh, year after year, you'll have conversations with me. Hey, I've been praying for, I, I've, I have names that are popping in my head, but I'm not going to say them. I, I, I'll come up with my typical name, Kyle. I don't know. I never had a, a Kyle like that I was the closest with, but that's just the name I come up with. There, people come up, hey man, I just want you to know, I was able to pray with Kyle two weeks ago and it was awesome. I, I've been inviting Kyle to uh, the baptism service that we're having at the farmhouse and he said he's going to come. So many of you guys don't give up. And let me just encourage you. I know you want to have the right words to say. I know you want to point to the right verses and encourage them. Just not quitting is probably the greatest message you can give them. Because you see evangelism not as an event. I did it. God is sovereign. He can take it and he can do what he wants with it. You just steadily invest. Hey man, I'm still praying for you. Shoot him a text. I was reading this Bible verse and it made me think about you. Let them know, hey, I'm not going to quit inviting you to church. We're going to be at the farmhouse in a couple of weeks. I know that you like it out there. Come on, man, I want you to come with me. You guys encourage me like that. Secondly, you guys encourage me when we do the hard work of being in community, especially when we need to be carried. Y'all do this really, really well. There are only two, if you don't know Midtree real well, there are only two things we really ask of our members and then an asterisk. The two things that we ask is make gathering together corporately, weekly, a priority in your life. That's number one. Number two, 50% of the year we meet on Wednesday nights. We usually meet for six to seven weeks, then take off about the same amount of time. We want you to be in a missional community group. It isn't a Bible study. It's people getting together so that they can be known and know others and then invite people into the family of God. Those are the two things. The asterisk is, please help us in kids' ministry because we have so many of them. And you know why? I don't feel bad because it's your fault. I only brought four, okay? That's how many I'm responsible for, all right? And I think my wife was in there earlier today doing pretty little Mother's Day things, right? Shh, but it's a secret. All right. Don't forget. All right. So you guys do the hard work of being in community, especially when we need to be carried. Without community, this man doesn't make it to Jesus. Literally. He can't walk. Jesus may as well be a million miles away. But then these guys step in, and you know what they don't do? They don't come to him in his brokenness and tell him it's okay to be broken. They don't tell him that he was good enough without Jesus. They don't just try to bring him comfort or encouragement. They bring him to the one who knows that he's broken and knows how to do something about that. Does Jesus heal every brokenness today, every time we pray for it? No, he doesn't. Check out the sermon about two weeks ago. Conflict is used by God intentionally. But God is also not done doing amazing things. He's not done in my life and he's not done in yours if you're seeking him. A couple of verses you should jot down as you think about that. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Don't get so caught up in being legalistic that you stop loving people. 
couple of guys in this room came over to my house uh, today to help my mom get a washer and a dryer installed. They were working on the Sabbath. And do you know what the pastor didn't do? Ridicule them and tell them how horrible they were. Why? Because they were carrying, literally carrying 350 pounds of somebody else's burden. And in that, they were fulfilling the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Some people need a kick in the rear. Some people, you just got to light a fuse behind them to get them to move. Hadn't seen you in three months, bro. You loving Jesus? Yeah, it's just busy. It's just been hard. Light a fire. That's a loving thing to do. Other people, it goes on, encourage the faint-hearted, the broken-hearted, the depressed. We don't light fires behind those people. We get in front of them and we say, come on, grab my hand. Come with me into community. We help the weak by throwing them around our shoulders And regardless, we are patient with them all. Finally, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Before I read this, I hope that you have someone. Um, I I hope that you have a person that you can call with a phone call like this. I just really screwed it up. I just made maybe the biggest mistake I may have ever made in my life. I know that the Bible says God can forgive me. I don't know how he's going to forgive me. I don't know how my family is going to forgive me. I hope you have a person that you can call like that because every one of us has calls like that to make if God gives us another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You guys encourage me because you fight for community. And a lot of times, you are holding me up, which is exactly what we see as we go to the last encounter tonight. If you would drop in Mark chapter 2 to verse 13. Jesus continues on in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him two words, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And Jesus hangs out with him for a while. In verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, just so you know, we don't know whose house this is. Um, We don't know if his house was Levi's, Matthew's, or if it was maybe Peter's, where they were likely hanging out at this time. But they ended up at someone's house And either way, this would have been a very different meeting than that house had ever had. Because in it were Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know if you appreciate the parallel of what just happened here. A sick guy is presented to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, I can deal with your sin problem. And then a dude with a sin problem, the tax collector, is presented with Jesus, and Jesus says, sick people need physicians, not healthy people. Do you see this? It's beautiful the way that God has taken these two stories and smashed them together. Why? Because sin is sickness. You just don't feel it the same. You feel it when you've got a fever, but you don't feel it the way God feels it when you have an evil thought. 
You feel it when you burn your hand, but you don't feel it the way that Christ felt it on the cross when you reach out for something that is sinful. And Jesus ends up renaming this guy Matthew, which is fascinating because Matthew means gift of God. The guy who was a taker is renamed the gift that God is given. Now, tax collectors in that day are more like mafia members. There, there was this huge organized type of a scandal, and what would happen is all of the Jewish people had to pay taxes. Rome was like, we want some money. You guys have some money. Bring in the money. And so the Jews would come. They would line up in front of this dude's booth, and they would start handing him money, except Rome didn't mind if the tax collectors took a kickback. In fact, it almost seems like they probably encouraged it because getting a tax collector was not the easiest thing to do because this tax collector was a Jew as well. He was selling out his own people and looking them in the eye when he did it day after day, hour after hour, week after week. Looking them in the eye as he says, your tax bill is 10 coins, give me 13. And they say, you said it was 10 coins. And he said, here's the deal. You can give me 13 or I can say this isn't paid. You can deal with that guard who has a sword, a shield, and a spear. Or you can give me three coins. And they watch him pile for Rome, three for myself. Next. Just imagine how furious you would be if that happened in our lives today. If you walked up to Walmart. or Yeah, that doesn't work. It doesn't work because you can get stuff at Walmart on Amazon. I'm trying to think of something that you can only get one place. And that's kind of hard to do now because this is not Capernaum and we have nothing but first world problems. But just imagine, eh, here, we can do this. Taxes are perfect. You got them done yet? I don't. Apparently there's an extension. That's a great thing. So imagine for a minute, I, love, I laugh at our taxes. There was a comedian who was talking about it. He was saying, imagine coming to our country and figuring out taxes for the first time. You're like, okay, so I need to pay taxes. Can you tell me how much I owe? No, we're not going to tell you that. Um, okay, so I have to figure this out on my own? Yeah, you need to figure it out. Well, what happens if I get it a little wrong? You're going to go to jail. No, wait, what? What, are you kidding me right now? If I give you too much, you're going to give it back. But if I give you nothing, it's just kind of a jacked up system. Imagine if you went to pay your taxes and whoever it was that you paid, you watched them, not just take an appropriate amount, but they said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to file this incorrectly in a way that causes you to lose your home if you don't give me something that is painful for you. That'd be a good way to think about it for those of you who went in and had your taxes. I don't know how that works if you have TurboTax. It was so bad back then that the, so you have God's word over here, and then you have extra law that the Pharisees and the scribes came up with. It was such a bad problem that in these extra laws, if, if a tax collector tried to go to church, they would kick him out. He wasn't even allowed. He couldn't even come in here because of who he was. Not only that, if he touched you, you didn't go to church. He was that dirty. You think that didn't happen on purpose sometimes? You're handing the little bag of coins and he reaches out and says, oops, just to mess with you. It was such a problem that it wasn't considered sin to lie to them. Now, you probably wrestle with, is the white lie Eh, is that right? Is it wrong? She said, how does my makeup look? How honest do I answer? Right? Okay. We've been there. You guys have never been there before? Or do y'all just tell the truth? I can't tell who I'm in front of right now. You're either all lying or none of you are. I can't tell. But could, they're not talking about white lies. They could walk up and say, 
My house is 500 square feet smaller than it is. I have five children more than I have. And nobody would call it sin. You can't do that, by the way. Don't you dare lie on your taxes. Your pastor did not tell you you could do it. This guy, Levi, was a problem. Tons of accounting books. Tons of money. Probably a handful of fish. Some Roman soldiers. But likely not one friend. Who would want to be? Soldiers hated him. Jews hated him. The guy had nobody. And you know what that tells me? This is a dude who is absolutely fine being cutthroat. He'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. He doesn't need friendships. He doesn't need relationships. But all of a sudden, Jesus steps in. In verse 15, not only does Jesus step in, but as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Many followed him. In Matthew 18, we're told not even to eat with people who are claiming to be Christians, but living lives in open, unrepentant sin. And Jesus walks right in. Because if you want to be able to reach out and touch someone, you've got to be near them. You may have Levi's in your life, people who seem too far gone. No one is outside of the reach of Christ. Verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a a physician. Tax collector, thief, and murderer were all lumped together in that same list of laws. Imagine somebody who committed murder three years ago. They get out. This guy would be treated just the same as that guy when he moved into the neighborhood with you. That's who he was. And Jesus comes very, very close. And he looks at him and he says, guys, sick people need a physician. Healthy people don't. And what Jesus is saying to them, and he would say to every one of us is this, the moment you feel like you don't need grace, the moment we feel self-righteous, good enough, clean enough, straightened up enough, you and I have lost our ability to connect with God through Christ. It's not like we're sinners and all of a sudden we get cleaned up and then we're perfect and everything goes. Every day we need grace. And these guys, these scribes and these Pharisees had come up with so many laws that they could follow to make them think they were good enough. I just want to tell you a couple because I think they're fascinating. If you read in uh, Exodus or in Deuteronomy, you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. We just talked about that a little bit. And that's how the Bible leaves it. These guys go and they make 39 extra laws. One of the laws was you could tie a knot with a rope, but only if you could get it out with one hand. Which meant, literally, if we were still living in that day and age... The pastors would see somebody reach down to untie their shoe. And you better hope the rabbit doesn't go through the hole. Because you've all had this happen to you. You pull the string and it goes through the loop. And now your little knot is stuck. And you've got to use two hands to untie your shoes. Not in this day and age. In this day and age, you sit there. You sit there and your shoe stays the same. You need to get water out of a well. I hope you've got your belt on. You're not allowed to use a rope on Sunday, Saturday back then. You've got to take off your belt. I don't even know why that is. All I know is these guys came up with law after law after law so that they could say, look at how good I am. Look at how clean I am. Look at how awesome I am. And you know what? We haven't stopped yet. Let me push on a few buttons, but I can back up every single one of them. The Bible doesn't say that alcohol is sinful. Do we live as though alcohol is sinful? Drunkenness is sinful. Addiction is sinful, but it doesn't say anything about that. 
Do we live as though, uh, this is one of my other favorite ones. It's usually with young adults and with teenagers. Will, it's just a four-letter word. It doesn't matter. Some of us are on the wrong side of this. We'll say, hey, I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to say any of those words. And we will still say some of the most horrible things. We'll just avoid those. Is that really us preventing unwholesome talk from coming out of our mouth? I was sitting in a ministry in town that shall remain nameless for a meeting. Uh, by the way, this was when I had all of my hair like going every which way. Being told in front of a large group of people that a man having long hair is opposed to the gospel and there is no way that you can draw people to Christ with long hair. I'm just telling you, it's not like we've stopped being legalistic. Let us be careful that we know this word well enough to not add to it. There's enough. Christ has done enough for us. But what we find here is that if we underestimate our need, we will underestimate Christ. So don't. Let me leave you with a couple of things that I think can carry us from here. If we don't underestimate what our need are, we know that we need grace. We don't pretend as though we have our lives all the way fixed and together. If we don't underestimate our need, we won't underestimate how great Christ is. Here's one way. Keep seeking grace. It is a great way to remind you that you still need it. For those of us who grew up goody two-shoes rule followers, never ended up in the back of a squad car, never ended up with ISS or detention, you lame little people, you, all right? I'm sorry, all right? You sinned just as much as I did. You just didn't get caught, okay? And, and that's the most dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing is for you to sin and not get caught because then you tell yourself it's not that big of a deal. Do, do, do you see how busted this guy was when we spend a great deal of our time looking at who we were or who we are? We stop looking at who we're supposed to become, and do you know what Jesus saw when he walked by that tax collector's booth? He didn't see who Levi was. He didn't see who he is. He saw who this man could be. A guy who literally wrote one of the Gospels as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when you take these two guys, you take Levi and you take this paralytic and you smack them together, I double dog dare you to tell me what's similar about them. Because there's not much one was broken and incapable, the other a, a go-getting cutthroat, I'll do whatever it takes, capable kind of a guy. One surrounded by friends, the other guy doesn't have a single one. One of them goes to Jesus, the other one Jesus comes to. One of them's poor, the other is rich. One is ashamed, the other has more self-confidence than you could put in a bottle to sell. One man was given much. Hey, you're about to walk. Another man was said, give me everything and leave it behind. Do you know what these guys had? They needed grace. That's it. That's all these guys have in common. Their need for grace birthed by faith, which was given by God. And you know what? Same thing here and same thing for everyone that we are praying for. We need grace. No cultural dividing lines in the gospel except one. Those who are seeking grace and those who are not. Listen to what I said. Not those who sought grace and those who did not, those who are seeking grace and those who are not. When was the last time you were unruly? When was the last time you just kind of lost it? Can I tell you that that is a gift for you? It's not a gift that God likes your sin, but it is a good thing for a sinner to remember they're still a sinner because it drives us back to Christ. Number two, if you don't underestimate your, Jesus, your need, you won't underestimate Jesus. The gospel makes people new, not just nice. 
Being nice is a good thing, but it's not a gospel thing. Being new is a gospel thing, but it isn't always nice. I, I loved what Jared said. He was like, I, I lived so much of my life thinking I needed Jared 2.0. I need Will 2.0, Christy 2.0. Christy, you're fine. You just stay. All right, we'll say Larry 2.0. If you know Christy, <laughs> 1.2, all right? We walk around thinking we just need little upgrades when the Bible doesn't treat it that way. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You want to know how to live the right life? Die to yourself. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's easy to fake nice. It's easy to do things, act away, or say the words. But who do you want to be? It's easy to do it out here. Who do you want to be in here? The only one that changes that is God, the Spirit of God. Which means if you've wandered into this room and you're not a Christian, and you're like, these dudes talk about grace a lot. They talk about sin a lot. They talk about community a lot. It's because we're not done. I'm not dead. I'm still breathing. When I am dead and Jesus says, welcome, that's when I stop worrying about grace. Not really. I just celebrate it. I don't have to ask for it. It's already been given. But while I'm living, while I'm breathing, if you don't believe me, ask my wife, ask my kids. This guy needs grace every single day day. I need a new system, a new heart, a new motivation, a new desire, a new goal, a new hope. If that's you, don't leave without getting some prayer tonight. Man, we want to pray with you. And then finally this, don't underestimate your need. Don't underestimate Jesus. And you will care little for what matters little and care much for what matters much. I love the fact that Jesus is teaching the room is crowded, and all of a sudden, dirt starts falling from above. I asked my grandmother one time, she never had anything bad to say about my grandfather. He died when I was very young. I have very few memories. I'm named after him. He was William Hambrick, and I am William Richard, and I was named after the guy, but I don't have a ton of memories. And I was cutting grass one day, and I was sitting down with my grandmother, drinking sweet tea on the front porch, which makes it feel like I was born 50 years prior than I was. And I'm sitting there, and I'm hanging out with Grandma, and I say, Grandma, tell me a story about Granddad when he screwed it up. I've never heard you do that before. Tell me one. And she said, oh, William. I can't do her voice for the rest of the story, but that, oh, William. And here's what she said. She said, we were working on a building next to the church. And for whatever reason, William decided, got it in his head, that he and his buddies needed to fix the roof while the service was going on. Maybe they started and they just didn't want to quit. They didn't want to finish or anything like that. And, and so the preacher's in there and he's laying it out and he's doing the things and people are trying to listen. And, and just adjacent to them, it's just this incessant hammering. And 20 years later, 30 years later, it was the one thing that came to her mind. This was the worst thing my husband ever did. He hammered on a wall while the preacher was preaching. Do you know Jesus didn't care one bit? Do, I, I, a lot of people cared. People are there, dirt's falling in their hair. Sticks are falling on a table that had just been cleaned because Jesus was coming over. People are drinking and all of a sudden there's stuff in their drink. And let me just say, this wasn't a minor like interruption. They had to make the hole big enough for the whole bed to fit down. And Jesus not one time has a problem. You want to know why? This was the greatest illustration of what he was probably teaching. He just watched it. He's teaching and dirt 
and debris, and all of a sudden half a bed comes through the ceiling, and these guys bring down their friend, and Jesus says, this is faith. This is what it means to run hard after me. This is what it means to not give up on your friends and to not give up on community. This is what it means to say, I need grace, not I used to need grace. I'm running to Jesus. You invite the youth group over and somebody knocks over your mailbox. Somebody dents your car. It's cool. It's not a big deal. This person's house got trashed so a, tr- a man's trashed life could be made whole. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I'll just tell you when I put that into practice, I breathe fresher air. I have more energy, I have pep in my step, I tend to smile a little bit more when I remind myself that the world just keeps spinning anyway. Why not trust Jesus in it? It goes on, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. There's some people in this room who need to hear this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Tomorrow comes, it's going to have its own garbage. Today had its own garbage. Three days later, it'll have its own garbage. Why don't we just stay present with where Jesus has us, the people that he has put around us, and run hard to him? We need grace, so let's be people who show it as well. I'll be in the back you need to pray, crumb packers will be in the back if you need to pray. Let's all stand up. And as you do, I'm just going to ask God to bless as we sing one song together to close. Father, we are a people who need grace. We are not a people who used to need grace. We are a people who need community. We are a people who many times want to go it on our own, especially if our sin is going to be seen. Don't let us be those kind of people. Father, you have made us to need one another and you have made us to constantly need you, to never graduate from our need for you. May we be those friends. May we have that kind of a tenacity. May we let the things of this world like houses with holes fall to the wayside for things that actually matter like people and souls and love. And would you light within us a fire, a gospel fire that would continue to burn with every breath that we have, not to act as though we all have it together, but to be willing to put on display that we do not so that an onlooking world a world of tax collectors and thieves just like us but without grace can see grace and they can run to the Father and they can have their needs met. Father, would you meet our needs and send us into the lives of people who have them so that we can watch the story of your glory unfold for them as well. Amen. Let's sing together.